Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Jason Brown. Jason has over a decade of stocks and options trading experience and is a graduate of Wayne State University with a bachelor's degree in finance. At the age of 23, Jason took a $10,000 student loan and turned it into a six-figure trading account. As a result, his passion for teaching others how to unlock the financial power of the stock market began. Jason has since created his own online stock market education company, Power Trades University, which houses his courses, coaching, and community. Power Trades University has helped thousands of students around the world to start investing and learn the strategies to survive in both up and down markets. He's an active YouTuber with over 70,000 subscribers and has videos that have reached over 1 million views. He's also host of the Money, Markets, and Mindset podcast. In the episode, Jason shares the top mistakes a lot of us are making when it comes to our investments, why your mindset about investing is more important than anything, a tip for knowing when it's time to sell a stock, and more. Before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you. If you're a wine lover like me, I have a question for you. Do you know what's actually in your wine? Chances are you probably don't because you can't find ingredients or nutrition facts on most wine bottles. Alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post these labels, which is how they can sneak in sugar and other additives. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines has come to the rescue. Their natural wines are lab tested to ensure that they're sugar-free and lower in sulfites and alcohol. Every single bottle of Dry Farm Wines is also made with organic grapes, free from all industrial additives, and fermented with 100% wild native yeast. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wines, conventional wines, Even the ones that are top rated on Wine Spectator give me headaches and just make me feel overall gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm Wines Natural Wines, I just know you're going to be immediately hooked. To get a bottle of natural wine for just a penny, visit dryfarmwines.com slash thehealthinvestment. And one more thing. If you've been enjoying what you hear on the Health Investment Podcast, please tell a friend, family member, or coworker about it. My goal is to empower as many people as possible to invest in their health so they can look and feel their best. So I'd love to have your friends, parents, and crazy coworkers along for the ride. I can't thank you enough for your support and help in spreading the word. Truly, it means the world to me. All right, let's hear from Jason. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips 
so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. It's interesting because a lot of people will refer to money when they talk about my brand, even though I'm in the nutrition and weight loss and health space. But since the word investment is in the title, people will kind of bring that up and make parallels to how they see it going aside with money and kind of the same principles. But I haven't Mm -hmm. actually had a financial expert on the podcast yet. And I truly believe that financial health is super important for your physical and mental and emotional health as well. So I, I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait to dive in and I'm sure we'll see a lot of parallels between some of the stuff I usually talk about and the stuff you're going to talk about. So thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a journey to get here as we talked about before we start recording, (laughs) but I'm so glad to be here and, and share. Awesome. Would you start by just sharing with my audience and me uh, what led you to become a stock market coach in the to, in the first place, and also to start the Brown Report? Yeah, absolutely. So, I initially was trading stocks and options um, in my early like well, when I was like eighteen, I opened a, a trading account, and then fast forward. I had made, I ended up taking a $10,000 student loan and turning it into $120,000. So I had made $120,000 like as a broke college student. And from there, I went off to, I quit school, started day trading full time, uh, making over $100,000 for about two and a half to three years straight. Then like year four, I like risked like $300,000 trying to make like half a million to a million, end up losing it all had to move back home with my parents, uh, or should I say my mother. Um, And so what happened was I started to question if I really knew what I was doing. And so I sought out to take some courses, learn from some other people I was following. And then I got back to making money in the stock market and I was making the same trades and calls that they were making. I was seeing the, the market the same way that they were. And so I thought, man, I wonder if people would pay me for like my tips or my stock market insight, because I was thinking, how do I get more money into the stock market? How do I get more money into the machine, the investment machine? And so I just started um, the Brown Report by just giving away free information, tweeting. I was like, I just want to see like, is this information valuable? Do people even care? And so that's how the Brown Report actually started, just giving away the free information. And then as people were making money and learning from my free information, I started to actually get upset at the industry because I was like, why don't they explain it like this? And why didn't they just say it like that? Like, why do they have to make it so complicated or make it sound so fancy? And so I really, at that point, it went from a hobby to like being a passion of like being upset about the industry, making it so complicated and confusing to people. I was like, I'm going to explain it the way that I needed to hear it or the way I would need to hear it if I was a brand new person. I didn't go to school for this, et cetera. So that's literally what launched my passion into like 
taking it from a hobby to taking it serious. Oh, wow. So yeah, I would agree. I think investing can seem super complicated, especially for someone like myself. I know that it's important to save money and it's important to have your money making money, right? Is that how you kind of think about it? Like when Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here right now, it would be important to have my money working so that I'm just not making what I can make in an eight hour day, let's say, but also beyond that. Um, and I think I, I've read a couple investing books. I don't know. I'm sure I'd love to hear it now or yeah, let's just talk about it now. Um, I read the millionaire next door, which was really impactful. Um, but have you read that book particularly? Um, I have that book cause I went to a conference and they gave it to us. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of those books. I'll tell you why. I think they do do a good, they, they do appeal to a certain market though. I, I will mm. say that, but I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with it. <laughs> yeah. I think, I guess I got that idea that just blew me away that my money could actually be working as well. And every dollar I invest, that's what's happening. Um, and then they go into the whole kind of, millionaires are living next door to you and kind of living slightly below their means and yada, yada. But in terms of books, is there, are there any that stand out to you that is like the best investment book you've ever read? Or do you think they're just not that great and you should write your own? (laughs) Well, here's the thing we can go there and in no disrespect to any of the authors who's written these books. I think that's David Bach or someone millionaire next door. Um, a lot of a lot of these books. Here's my issue with a lot of these books, um, and you have to take it. Some you have to take it face value. Some you have to dig deeper and say, what are they trying to really say to people? Um, the thing about some of those millionaire next door books is that by the time you're done reading it, you're probably asking yourself, like, why do I want to be a millionaire then? Like, I can't drink coffee. I can't <laughs> go out to where I want to go out. So, like, it doesn't sound exciting to go on the journey to be a millionaire on some of these books. Um, but I think what they're really trying to say is like, you can get there, um, with discipline is the big picture. But when it comes to investing in books, I really like more mindset books because investing is really a mindset. And the thing you have to master is fear and greed and all the limiting beliefs you had as a a child that your parents and stuff taught you about money. And so I like books like think and grow rich, Um, I like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I like The Alchemist. Books like that, that really open up your mind to thinking differently versus, you know, studying specifically what a millionaire did or didn't do because millionaires come up in different time frames. Like I couldn't reproduce what Rockefeller did today. I mean, he came up during a time where, you know, there was oil or Henry Ford came up in a time where there was no automobiles. And so, sometimes you just have to say like, what, what, what are the principles I can take from that? And how can I apply it today? And so I like reading books more about principle and mindset than I do specifically about investing. Hmm, I love that. What would you say are some of the most critical mindset shifts that beginning investors need to overcome? I think the first critical mindset shift that people you know, or beginner investors can overcome is the fact that they can do it. Like it's so many people that just don't believe in themselves. You know, you could, 
you know, you could jump on the phone with five of your friends and just say, have you thought about investing? And I, I can guarantee you, you'll get a, a few responses. I'm not smart enough to do that. That's too much work. Um, oh, that sounds like I should pay someone to do that. Right. So there's this, this concept that, or, or I need to go back to school before I do that, or huh, I can't even manage my own checking account, let alone invest. And so we don't give ourselves enough credit. And if we don't believe we can do it, we'll never start the journey. We'll never watch the YouTube video. We'll never purchase a course. We'll never even set out because we don't believe we can do it. So I think that's the first thing that, you know, new, new investors or anyone can tackle with their mindsets. Just know that you can do it and that these people know something that you don't know. And that would be the second thing is the mindset of I'm going to find out what I don't know. Cause that's all it is. It's just something you don't know. You don't quite understand, which is normal. You, you, you didn't come up with someone talking about it in your family or at the dinner table, but just know that you can learn it and you can learn what you don't know. And that'll really just bridge the gap. So those two would be the first two I would start with believing in yourself, believing that you can do it. And secondly, that the people who do do it, they're not, you know, Clark Kent, they're not Superman or Superwoman. They just know something that you don't know. And if you can learn it, you can either A, decide to do it yourself or B, be very good at picking someone to handle your money because at least you understand it. So you know what you're looking for when you when you hire uh, some type of money manager or financial planner. Hmm. Yeah, I think my generation, at least, I don't know if this is the case for, you know, my parents' generation as well, but I think a lot of my friends tend to fall back on just having a 401k through work and maybe just kind of settling for that. Um, and I know that that can be very important and your company could, will match sometimes, so that can be good. But I used to be a teacher, and so I had one set up through, I think, TIAA or I know TIA at my old school. And I remember hearing the advisor come speak with us. And I was listening because I was really intrigued by it. But I remember him saying that the way just the automatic settings in your my 401k were set for the risk level of somebody who's in their 50s or 60s. So I found that kind of weird and thought I should probably be doing riskier investments because at the time I was in my 20s. So I did some basic research, read some articles, and then changed my settings. Didn't exactly know what I was doing, but I just went in there and I thought, based on what I've read, I think I need to change it. And then a few years after that, the advisor came back and we could schedule these one-on-one -on -one meetings with him. And so I scheduled one and he said, oh my gosh, you're one of the only younger people here who went in and changed your settings and you've done so much better. That was such a good thing to do. And so it gave me some confidence of, okay, I actually can figure this out a little bit, but it was interesting because I went and I talked to my colleagues, you know, I marched into the lunchroom and I was saying, you guys, did you ever go in to your 401k and switch things around? And the response I got was much like you just said, just, I don't know how to do that. I'm just going to leave it like it is. I have no idea. Um, so I do think that is a really common problem, I guess, with people of just not feeling that confidence or just feeling like they can figure it out. Yeah. And it's, it's just, 
it's funny that you say that, but it's it's so true. When you have like the default stuff, it's it's typically going to. I mean, if you really research what the default uh, allocation is, you'd be like, "Why am I in that? Right? What, why, <laughs> right. why am I in something that's designed for someone that's like you said, fifty nine or sixty years old?" And and then on the other side, you said, "Well, I should be in something more risky." Well, even that word scares people. But it's like, what is quote unquote, what is more risky even me? You know, they'll say, oh, well, you, you know, you're going to be in tech stocks. They're more risky. But what most people don't understand is you're investing in tech stocks anyway. And you're like, mm-hmm. what do you mean, Jason Brown? Well, you probably have an iPhone. You probably have an Android, which is, you know, created by ticker symbol G-O-O-G, which is Google, right? You probably on that iPhone or Android or on the Facebook app and you're on it all day and you're seeing the advertisement. If you run a business, you're running ads. Yet someone is telling you it's risky to be in tech stocks. Yet these are the stocks that are going higher and higher. And you are um, part of the reason why it's going higher and higher. But for some reason, when it comes to investing in it, we take off our common sense hat and we put on our fear hat. And it's like, whoa, 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 but I heard tech stocks are are risky, or I heard that, you know, these stocks, um, you know, you heard about the dot-com bubble burst or whatever the case may be that kind of scares you from going in and making those changes. But when you look at your account, you you might say, why do they have me in 10-year bonds that are paying 2%, but I could have been in this tech fund that has Facebook, Apple, and Google which are the products that I actually use, you know, and you don't realize you could have been over there getting 10% a year versus being in that 2% 10 year bond um, that they had you in as a default setting. So is that something you recommend to people to not just accept their 401k to really go in and see how it's, how everything's allocated and make some changes? You know, I'm careful not to use the word recommend, but right. I, I, what I would recommend is people understand what they're investing in. Just find out what 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 is in that 401k. What is even in that collection? Because all it is is a collection of stocks, bonds. I mean, everyone has access to the same market. I think that's another thing your audience should know. It's not like Fidelity or any of these companies have access to different stocks. They don't have like a secret set of stocks that they can pick (laughs) from. And so really you can at any given time ask them or typically you can log online and say, what what is in fund 2036B for teachers? And legally they have to disclose what's in that fund. So you can literally go in there and see like, oh, I'm 20% bond, 60% tech. 10% 10% utilities, which could be water, gas, electricity, or something. And you can pick a fund that has more tech in it. It could have more of something else in it. But the key is just knowing what you're in and what's available. Um, one of the quick and dirty ways that I think can help a lot of people, uh, if they don't want to get all super technical, what I like to do is take the fund that you're in and take the funds that are available and just look at a five-year trend. They all have a three, five, 10, and I think a 15-year, oh no, lifetime. Like it'll say lifetime of this fund. It'll go usually three, five, 10, and lifetime of the fund. I would say take the middle and look at the last five years and say, what was the percent return of the fund I'm in? If it was 3%, and then you look at a fund over here over the last five years, that fund 
was a 20% return, almost without doing any more research, I would make the decision to switch from the 3% to the 20% fund. Because if things continue like they have for the last five years, that fund should yield me 20% more than the one I'm in without doing that much more research of like what the actual stocks are. You're just looking at which one's given a better percentage. So that's just a small thing that people can do if they don't necessarily want to get too technical, but they understand, okay, over the last five years, I've been here 2% over the last five years, 10%. If I move over there and it keeps doing what it's doing, I should make 10% versus 4% now over the next 10 years total staying in the one that I was in. Does that make sense? Yeah, that really does. So then my next question would be, let's say you move to the one that's making 10%. Is it important to keep monitoring that or can you just buy it and leave it in there for 15 years and expect that over, let's or even more, let's say 15, 30 years that you can just kind of set it and forget it? Or do you recommend being kind of active and monitoring them and selling and buying new ones? Yeah, I think that's the problem that most people make is setting it and forget it. So just imagine you're in that 2% um, account that gives 2% every five years, and you're not going to look at it for 40 years after working 40 years until you retire, only to realize you've been getting 2% for the last 40 years when you could have switched five years in and for the last 35 years been getting 10% a year. So no, it's not set it and forget it because almost every, the reason I picked five years is because things can change in five years, right? Facebook's hot today, Apple, et cetera. But in five years, it might be a different fund. It might be a different stock. It might be a different economy. And so five years is a good time to look again and say, okay, is there a different fund I should be into going into the next five years, that's long enough for the average working class person to not feel overwhelmed, just every five years taking a look at it. But if you set it and forget it, it's a chance that the fund that you moved into that was doing 10%, now it's doing 8%. Oh, things aren't as good as doing 6%, 5%. That may become the new 2% fund if you're not paying attention to move over into what should be the next 10% return fund. So that's why it's not necessarily wise to set it and forget it, but most people do. And then they, at the end of their working years, they have way less money than they thought they should have. Or the majority of the money they have is the money that they put in and the company match, but they didn't get the growth that they were expecting. That's really good advice. And I'm definitely guilty of setting and forgetting it. (laughs) So I need to... Probably go with, yeah. Well, and I think I've also, you know, there's so much mixed advice out there, but I've also heard don't look at it because then maybe you'll be stressed and tempted to pull money out. So just put it in there and never look again. And as long as you have a diversified portfolio, it'll all work out in the end. What would you say to kind of those points? Yeah. So that's why I pick five years because that's long enough for you not to, you know, look at it. You're not day trading, right? So if, if, you know, you look at the pandemic, for example, anyone who, if you, well, we're not sharing our screens, but if I pulled up a stock chart right now, if you look at the pandemic and you look at where the market sold off and everyone was panicking and all this and that, you know, it lasted two months 
two and a half months, roughly. So literally, if you just did nothing for two and a half months, not only did it recover, but the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ are all well above where the pandemic, where it was before the pandemic even happened. And so to that point, if you're a long-term investor, yes, you don't want to be looking at it every day. You don't want to pull your hair out because of a pandemic or because, you know, we got a new president or something like that. Um, You're not actively, you're not actively managing for these short-term events, but over time it's shown, it doesn't matter who's the president. It doesn't matter if there's a pandemic. We've been through Ebola outbreaks. We've been through HIV outbreak. We've been through smallpox where our parents and stuff have. We've been through um, planes flying into uh, the buildings in New York and the market bounced back. We've been through the, the real estate market crash when everyone thought the world was over, right? No one would ever buy a house again. If you didn't panic, eventually the market came back. And so, yeah, it's so important if you're a long-term investor I wouldn't say don't look at it. You can look at it, but don't panic. But the problem is most people panic, right? Mm -hmm. So 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 it's probably important to figure out your own risk tolerance. It's super important to figure that out. It's super important to figure it out. And and not even know showing your risk tolerance. Just figure out when you're going to need the money and if you need to make any adjustments. Because that's really the question you're trying to ask yourself. Do I need to make an adjustment because of a pandemic or will this be something that's behind us in two years and I don't need this money for 20 years? Like, am I really going to make an adjustment for something that's going to last one year, maybe two years? And that's really the question you need to be asking yourself. Not necessarily how much risk can you take, but has something so big happened that it's going to be so long lasting that I really need to look at my portfolio and make a change? And typically the answer is no. Mm, okay. So do you recommend keeping a certain amount of your money in some type of emergency fund and then investing the rest? Yeah. So in, you know, that's, that's, that's definitely the Dave Ramsey approach, right? <laughs> have a, yeah. have an emergency fund, which I think is important to have an emergency fund um, because things happen and you don't, you can't, you can't appreciate or sit patient on some long-term money if your short-term needs are not being met or if your car breaks down and you can't figure out how to get to work, right? But you're like, but I got 50000 in the stock market, but I'm about to lose my job because I can't get to work because my car broke down. So you do want to have some type of money set up for your immediate needs. Um, but big picture, the the more you take care of your current financial situation and live below your means and you're not in credit card debt, you're not buying a house or a car bigger than what you can afford, the more risk you can actually take. I always say like on my YouTube videos or my podcast, the reason I can risk $100,000 in a trade is because I don't owe anybody. Our house is paid for, our cars are paid for. Um, we, We don't owe for anything our taxes are up to date. And so if I lose $100,000, it's no big deal. Like life isn't going to stop tomorrow. Um, But if you owe taxes, you owe credit cards, you owe on your house, you owe on your car, you owe everybody, it's a little bit harder to even risk $5,000 because you're like, if I lose this, I could have paid a bill. So 
I, I recommend building your life where you have some margin to take risks. So if you make $60,000 a year after taxes, maybe you take home 45. If you can find a way to live your life at 35, then, and that's including paying bills, paying, you know, all the things. If you can live your life where you have a $10,000 margin of risk, almost every month you can risk $1,000 in the stock market or every year you can risk, you know, $10,000. And if it works out, great. But if it doesn't, no problem. And that's really where you want to be. Whether you, however you decide to get there, take a Dave Ramsey approach, a millionaire next door approach, stop buying coffee and lattes, emergency fund, big picture. If you have a $10,000 margin every single year or an extra thousand dollars a month, just about, you have enough for an emergency anyway, you know, Mm -hmm. for the most part. So, right. Yeah, that's a good point. So do you recommend investing monthly or maybe saving up and investing after five months, $5,000 all at once? It's all about discipline. So the, the, the thing about getting started, no matter where you're at, is that money could be making money on your way to saving the entire $5,000 versus you got the 5000 and now you're like, what do I invest in? Whereas mm-hmm. you've been following the market, you've bought one share of Apple, one share of Facebook here and there, and that money is also starting to make money as you continue to make more money to put into it. You can really start to see compounding growth. And so I say get started where you're at. It's not really about saving some big lump sum. It's just about adding to the machine, adding to the machine. Because if you put $100 in and at the end of the year, you make 100% return, you'll have 200 bucks. But if you've also been putting in 100 every single month, then it just it just compounds. Not only will you have mm-hmm. that 200 from the first month at the end of the year, but that second 100 that you put in, maybe that made 75% return. You, so it just compounds the sooner you get started. Assuming it, everything works yeah. out, right? You could lose right. money. It could go the other way. I don't want to just um, paint the picture that life is just good. But for the most part, stocks go up and not down. And especially... Is that where the diversified account comes in? If you have enough things, like what you make will kind of cover some of your losses? Yeah, yeah, totally. So let's just say, I mean, there's there's multiple ways to, to diversify, which is super important to think about. So let's just say you want to buy tech stocks. Well, if you just go in and buy Facebook and buy Apple, what if those two companies get sued and do bad? You're like, great. That, that just sucked, right? I lost yeah. uh, a big amount on Facebook and Apple. But if you go and buy something like the XLK, which is the technology sector, well, the technology sector will say it's made up of 10% Apple, 10% Facebook, 20% Amazon, um, 10% Verizon, 15% IBM. So if Apple and Facebook have a bad day, they only represent 20% of the technology fund. If the rest of the tech stocks are doing well, then 80% of your holding in that fund goes higher. The other way to diversify is by sector. So let's just say you have tech sector stocks and then you have utilities, electric, gas, water stocks. And you also have what's called, um, you know, like Caterpillar, 
um, which makes the construction um, equipment. You have John Deere. So you got three different categories right there. If tech is doing bad, that only represents 33% of your portfolio. You still got utilities representing 33% and you have construction stocks representing 33%. And so if your utilities and your construction stocks are going higher, but your tech is falling, you might make 6,000 in your utility and your construction stocks, but you might lose 2,000 in tech. So you're net positive $4,000. So you kind of double diversified. Instead of picking individual stocks, you pick sectors. And then instead of picking one sector, you pick three different sectors. So you double diversified. So that starts to give you a better chance of long-term, the totality of your portfolio grows. When you're saying sectors, are you, is that an ETF? Yes. So a sector could be the tech sector. It could be the biomedical sector. It could be insurance sector. Um, it could be the telecommunications sector. So yes, these are just sectors, uh, which are just groups of companies that operate in a certain um, vertical. Okay. You know, if you were to go out and buy, um, there's a sector called consumer staples, right? So consumer staples, you would be buying like Target, Walmart, Clorox, Colgate. These are retailers or products that you use every day for household cleaning, brushing your teeth, deodorant. So that would be called consumer staples um, sector, for example. What about bonds and mutual funds and real estate? Should we be diversifying that way as well? You you totally can. So that's that brings in another level of diversification. So in the stock market, you can be in real estate through something called a REIT, which is a real estate investment trust. So you can invest in real estate through a REIT, which is kind of like another sector, but you're still in the stock market. So now comes another level of diversification where you say, I don't even want to be in the stock market. I want to go buy houses or something like that. So you're investing in a totally different, not only sector, but a totally different machine with totally mm -hmm. different tax strategies and tax write-off, but also has its own totally different set of problems, right? With tenants yeah. and fixing and flipping and trying to find contractors. So you can diversify within the stock market and do REITs, or you can diversify from the stock market and go into real estate, which is, you know, now you're like, I got some of my money in the stock market, some of my money in real estate, and maybe you also own a business and you got some of your money funding some type of business or venture capital type of opportunity. Mm -hmm. What about bonds? Are those the same thing as stocks? I honestly don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. Great question. A, a bond is typically an instrument of debt. So all a bond is, is an instrument that says, if you give me money, I will give you back a guaranteed rate of return. So typically um, the yield is a lower percent, but it's guaranteed. So mm -hmm. when you hear uh, municip municipal bonds, for example, that is your local municipality saying, we need to fix the roads. We don't have any money. We want to raise $10 million. So if you give us $10 million, we're going to do a 10-year 2% bond. So basically saying they get to hold on to that $10 million for 10 years, and they're going to pay a guaranteed 2% at the end of that 10 years. For someone who has big money and I'm a billionaire, I might say, 
let me put three, 400 million into that. I'll get a guaranteed 2% return. That's safe money. That's guaranteed. I won't really lose it. I, I can't lose it. It's a guarantee um, that, you know, they're going to pay it back. And bonds are typically backed by the government, et cetera. So bonds are usually yo- low yielding um, debt instruments. I mean, you could issue a bond right now to raise money from your for your company. Hmm. Then what is a mutual fund? A mutual fund is just a collection of stocks that a company like Fidelity puts together for you. So if you don't want to figure out what to invest in, if you don't want to create, typically you could create your own mutual fund. Like I could create a fund called the Brown fund, right? I'm Jason Brown. I'll create a mutual fund called the Brown fund. All that simply means is I handpick all the stocks that are in that fund. Now to go a little bit further, a mutual fund has to get um, approved by FINRA. So you have to be licensed to create a mutual fund. So, I mean, from that standpoint, there's some benefits. I don't want people to think they can just wake up tomorrow and create their own <laughs> fund. Um, they, you have to get licensed. You have to get it approved. It has to be scrutinized by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commissions. So all that tells you is that that person is licensed. FINRA says they have an office somewhere. They've passed a Series 6 and 63 licensing, and they can sell their own mutual fund. Now, if we just simplify that, the mutual fund just means I sat at my desk and I said, I'm going to put together a fund that includes Apple, Facebook, some utilities, a couple bonds, and I'm going to construct this portfolio or this mutual fund. And I'm going to say, this is a mutual fund for people age 18 to 25 with low risk. I'm going to create another fund called the Brown Fund Level 2, and I'm going to pick maybe some more aggressive stocks. And I'm going to say this is a fund, a mutual fund for people who are age 35 to 50. And that's really all it is. And so you may be saying, well, what separates each person from, why would you buy a mutual fund from any from this person over this person? Well, each company is going to sell you that our people pick the best funds. But it goes back to my earlier statement. There's only one stock market. So mm-hmm. no one has access to anything special It's just everyone comes up with their own way of picking their stocks and they say this is the best or they have previous history of returns to say, on average, the funds we pick give a 20% return to our clients. And that's really the only differentiator. But if I can find out what's in their fund, which they have to disclose, I can literally go on the open market and buy all of those stocks myself and create my own mutual fund. Well, it wouldn't be called a mutual fund because it wouldn't be licensed, but I can create my own uh, mirror image of that fund. Uh, okay. Is it bad to invest in the stock market when it's doing really well? Is it better to wait until it kind of dips a bit? It really, you know, one of the things that I feel like I get in trouble for, because my favorite answer is always, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so people listen might be like, well, he keeps saying it depends or maybe. <laughs> and the reason it depends, and I want to I want to make sure your listeners get this as well as you, it depends because it depends on your strategy. So mm-hmm. if, so for example, a person working a job contributing to your 401k they are going to buy at some high times. They're going to buy at some low times. That doesn't matter. What matters to them is that a portion of every paycheck comes out and goes into the market. Well, by default, you're going to buy some low, some high, some in the middle. So if that's your game, 
or your plan, then that's totally okay. There's nothing wrong with that. If you tell me you're a day trader and every day your goal is to buy something low and sell it high before four o'clock before the market closed, then it's bad to buy when the market is high. If you're a swing trader, which means market swing, they go up, then they pull it back a little bit. They go up, then they pull it back a little bit. If you're a swing trader, then buying at the high is not going to work out well for you. You're trying to catch those swings of when it sells off. Then you jump in, you see a pandemic happen, the market swung, you jump in and buy. So depending on your style is really going to be the answer to if something is bad or good or not. That's why I'm really against um, investors or YouTubers who just come on and say, I would never do this or that's stupid or you should never or always. Those are two words that really shouldn't ever go together when it comes to investing because never and always is all it's typically circumstantial it's based on the person's circumstance if you would do something or not and everyone's circumstance is so different which is why it's tough to give advice it's more like well what are you trying to accomplish here are some of the strategies that will get you there and then let's talk to what strategies you're comfortable with that's really what i'm trying to do as an educator if i wanted to give advice i would go get licensed but then the advice that licensed people give a lot of the time they give advice that may not necessarily be in your best interest because they still have to make a commission. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're me and you're just creating a big diversified collection of stocks. I mostly invest in ETFs. So, and I'm keeping my money in there for let's say 30 plus years Is it okay for me to just go in monthly and drop some more money in there? Or would you kind of take this, what do you call it, the swing trader attitude and wait for the market to swing down a little bit? Or you said at that point you could eventually lose money because your money's not compounding. I mean, maybe you end up waiting months. So maybe that's not the best strategy. Well, the the answer to that question is going to be how active do you want to be? You know, someone Mm. who does this full time or... For example, in our program, every week for two hours, we look at the market on on Mondays, excuse me, and we look for, you know, swings, we look for trades, we look for what's moving next. For some people looking at the market, I always say, if you don't have at least two hours a week to look at it, then that style is not for you. Some people are just so busy that they don't have two hours. Now, that's beyond me. I, I think everyone should at least have two hours to focus on their wealth. but Some people don't even have at least two hours. So if you don't have at least two hours a week, I wouldn't recommend trying to swing trade. If you're a day trader, if you don't have at least four or five hours a day, (laughs) then I don't recommend day trading, right? And so if you're just somebody who's like, I just want to run my business, be married, be with my kids, know that I have something going on, then you just contribute something every month knowing that long-term it should grow, but don't set it and forget it take a look at it every five years and make sure that's still the ETF that you should be in, or those are still the several ETFs that you should be in. And if you have to make an adjustment, then you make an adjustment, you know, every five years. Mm -hmm. I I definitely need to do that. that. That's going to be happening within the next week because of your advice going in and seeing how my ETFs have done over the last five years. So very grateful for that. 
piece yeah, it'll, of it'll be real eye-opening once you look and say like wow was i in the best one i could be in for the last five years or was i in the lowest one or was i in the middle um it'll mm-hmm. be very eye-opening i'd love to i'd i'd love to see your results i don't know if you'd post them on instagram or shoot mm. me a message or something i'd love to know I'll I'll definitely shoot you a message for sure, <laughs> provided I am able to garner the data. I'm really not a math person. That's why, again, I think that's one of those limiting beliefs. You know, I when I was teaching, I taught English and the math teachers would always talk about how that's something that is ingrained in so many of us from childhood of just, I'm not a math person. I'm not a numbers person. So I'm definitely guilty of that. But at some point I decided... I'm going to take charge of this and I'm going to do the best I can. And, you know, I did that at this point, I think five or so years ago, and I'm so glad I did. Uh, But I am excited to get in there and I will definitely let you know how it goes. (laughs) Um, What the final question I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? And feel free to talk about that in terms of finances or overall health however you want. You know, I think, I think a health investment is really just looking at your life holistically and making sure you're healthy. And what I mean by that is if you're, if you're making a ton of money and you're financially healthy, but you're not walking around the block, you're not eating um, good, you're, you're not taking care of your body, then you're, you're missing what's really important, right? You made money, but you're not taking care of the only body you have. You're taking care of your own body, but you're not paying attention to your money. You're not paying attention to your investments and money is causing you stress. You may be physically in shape, but you're kind of, you know, dying on the inside. Your, your brain, your mindset is occupied. You're stressing out. And so you're, you're, you're still not successful. If you're in the best shape of your life, you look great and you've got a ton of money, but your marriage is falling apart and your kids don't really know who you are and you're not spending time with them, then you're not healthy, right? And so to me, healthy is making the investment to make sure you're never, I don't want to say balanced because there's some seasons you're going to be out of balance. The key is not allowing anything to get too far out of balance to where, you know, it breaks or tips over. And so that would be the investment I would tell listeners to make sure that they're paying attention to is like their overall wealth and health, not just a financial number, not just a a number jump stepping on the weight scale, um, but really looking at your overall um, health score and saying, am I winning or am I losing? Yeah, I love that. Well, I know everybody is going to want to follow you and find you outside of this podcast. So where are the best places for people to do that? Yeah, the best place to connect with me would be at the website, which is thebrownreport.com. From there, you know, my Instagram, YouTube, you can find all the other things. So thebrownreport.com. I also own brownreport.com. So if they forget the the, it'll still take them to the same spot. (laughs) Nice. I love it. That's the, when you're signing up for your website initially on GoDaddy or whatever, it gives you all the suggestions. Do you want to own all these other ones as well? But that's smart. That's really very smart. Maybe I should have done that for the health investment. Something else I'll need to look into now after talking to you. (laughs) Well, really appreciate your time and just all of the information you shared today. I know I learned a ton 
And I can't wait to put this to good use. And I just look forward to staying connected off air. And thanks again, Jason. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to your listeners for checking out this episode. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.